ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Are the rules of war absolute or are they malleable depending on the urgency and the severity of the situation and therefore do they exist at all? These are the kinds of questions we will be trying to answer on the minefield today. Welcome to it. We negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host on this show. Uh, Scott, I feel the tension rising already Mm. in this particular program. Can I just say I've never felt more uncomfortable about the name of our show? That's true. It's funny you say that, actually, because I had almost exactly the same thought a few weeks ago when I was overseas. And I went to Cambodia and Laos. And anyone who's familiar with that part of the world will know that there are a few very significant issues to do with war, stories in their recent history to do with war, that you just cannot escape and cannot help but be affected and even shaken by when you're there. And in Cambodia, of course, there's the Khmer Rouge regime and and what Pol Pot did, which I just think is, by the way, massively undersold mm, I agree. in our discourse. But Sorry, then, undersold you mean as being worthy of being ranked of the true monstrosities of the 20th yeah, century? Yeah, I don't think yeah. we, it fully, I mean, everyone talks about Hitler. And, I, you know, you don't need to explain why, that's obviously. Yeah. And, right it's, and it's difficult sometimes to bring people around to the Stalin conversation. One of the well, yes. one of the things that is truly grotesque, if I can just say, and I don't mean to kind of divert you too much, is the sheer amount of intellectual apologias that were offered up on the altar of Stalin for fear of falling in too much with the fascists and the imperialists. And at the mm-hmm. same time, the number of Marxist intellectuals who came to Pol Pot's defense, um, again, yeah, yeah. for fear of being thrown in with the imperialists. Which doesn't surprise me at all. Though. It doesn't, but I it mean, is do you know what it monstrous. Does? It, yeah, but, and what's really interesting, actually, to me, that one of the lessons I draw from, you know, travel like that and from just issues like this mm. is we are actually always teetering on the brink of falling into something truly dark. It's much closer, it's much more proximate to where we are and how we think than we realise mm. a lot of the time. There's something about it that seems otherworldly when it's in a on a history page, but there's something about the ordinariness of it and how close you can get to what what's the right word rationalizing hmm. uh, apologizing etc hmm. I guess this is the banality of evil conversation anyway that's not the point I was going to make but what I obviously so there's the the Khmerage and the Pol Pot regime and some of that stuff is really arresting when you actually are face-to-face with it uh, in situ. But one of the things that came along with that, and not only with that, was landmines in Cambodia, and hence (laughs) thinking about the title of our show being The Minefield, which we tend to throw around as kind of a, oh, it's the minefield. Kind of an edgy edgy metaphor that suddenly isn't so edgy. Yeah, when you realise what a minefield really is and what it's like to live amidst one of them, then it, yeah, it feels quite different. Um, but then I went to Laos, and in Laos, really the thing that strikes you in this area is the legacy of the secret war. So this was the American bombing of Laos as part of the Vietnam War. Right. because it was the between Vietnamese... 69 and 73. It was yes. a series of unacknowledged... Uh, sorties and shadow missions that were carried off to the side in order to supposedly, what do you want to say? Uh, well, it was disrupting supplies. So yes, the, and the, limit the spread of a certain ideological contagion, they thought. yeah. Well, the whole war was that. That's right. Right. And, you know, that was the whole point of fighting communism in Southeast Asia. It was the domino theory, et cetera. Um, and when you think about it in those terms, I, and, and this is worth pausing on, right? Because as it turned out, those countries ended up under communist rule, and there was no domino, really. Not in the the way that it was being spoken about, the apocalyptic terms. But if you took the theory seriously at the time, and many clearly did, what was at stake was the future of the world, right? Mm. Let's make no bones about it. What communism did and what the Soviet Union did claimed the lives of tens, perhaps even 100 million people, right? So this is not... It's not nothing. 
This is just, if you want to talk existential threats, the narrative was of one of the biggest existential threats you could imagine. Mm. You can criticize the narrative, and certainly in hindsight, it's obvious to criticize it. But that was the narrative, right? So anyway, the, the Vietnamese communists are sending supplies from the north to the south, but they're doing it via Laos and Cambodia. Uh, and as a result, America starts bombing this trail. It was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Start bombing them to disrupt the supply chain and the supply route. And they did so by dropping more bombs on Laos than they dropped in World War II. Mm. The, and Laos became the numbers, the most, Walid, are eye-watering. 270 million bombs that were dropped. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Over the course of the four years of this shadow war, 80 million of which are estimated not to have detonated. Yeah, so about a, about a third. Yeah. So, but we need to get to the bombs in a second. But what this meant, this made Laos the most bombed country in world history. Mm, that's right. Per capita. Now, it's not a big population, but nonetheless, the tonnage is extraordinary. And I will confess, I knew just about nothing about it. I think that's a generational thing. I think there's an age, there's a generation earlier than mine that knew this very well because it came out in the Pentagon Papers. This was a secret, right? It was denied by the United States, never spoken about. I think, what was the language that, was it Nixon who used it, who said, um, we have no troops in Laos? Hmm. And maybe that was technically true because it was done from the sky. I don't know. But you, you get the point. Let me tell you, the Laotians knew it was happening. But it was also the weaponry that was used, which brings us to today's topic, because this isn't about my trip to Cambodia and Laos. This is about what has been announced in the past week or two in Ukraine. So the weaponry that America were using wasn't entirely new. I think it was originally used by the Germans uh, in the 40s, I think. The Russians were the originators of the cluster oh, munitions. Yeah. Okay. Yep. But they were using cluster bombs. That's right. Now, what a cluster bomb is, I don't. I, I think sometimes we just gloss over this and presume people know things about weaponry when actually people don't and have no reason to. What a cluster bomb is, is basically, think of a shell. Um, and inside that shell are many, many little bombs or bomblets. And in Southeast Asia, they call them bombies. They could be small, like the size of a tennis ball, perhaps. And they can, you can have up to 2,000 in these shells. You can have, you know, far fewer than that. I think the current ones that America has have about 70. Yeah, so the, the long-range ones, so, you know, it's sort of 20, so 30 kilometers plus, they tend to carry between sort of 72-odd and 86-odd uh, yeah. bomblets. But, but these are very large bombs, and not ones that are dropped from the sky, but ones that are loaded into long-range. Yeah, right. Guns. Mm. But, but so what happened in Laos, they would drop them from the sky, and the idea was that the shell would split open midair or mid-flight and drop the bombets over an area. Mm. So that instead of bombing a particular spot, what you're bombing is an area the size of, I don't know, a sporting field of some sort, and then the bombs would on impact explode, and they would therefore explode kind of in all directions and just wipe it. They were great at piercing armour, so you could pierce tanks and so on. Um, but they would also just eviscerate people who were in the area. Of course, it depends how close you are to the explosion of each bomblet. Some people wouldn't be killed. They might be maimed and they might lose limbs or whatever. But that's what would happen. Now, that's Can, one can I just thing. add one small thing there? It, it, sure. It's just worth pointing out for the sake of maybe something we want to turn to later in the discussion is that the imprecision of cluster bombs isn't a bug. It's a feature. Yeah, that's right. That's the idea. Yeah. And it, it suits particular purposes. That's right. And in the context of Ukraine, without wanting to preempt, it's really about the Russian forces being in dug-in positions. Mm -hmm. And so cluster bombs seem to be good at dealing with that, trying to attack troops that are dug into trenches and so on. Anyway, it's one thing to, for that to be a, a form of bombing. The problem is that a significant percentage of those bomblets don't explode. So it's not the ones that do explode that are the problem or the most pernicious problem. Um, it's the ones that don't. So in Laos, I think you said 270 million. The figure I saw was 240 million. Anyway, it's a lot of bomblets. Yeah. About a third didn't explode. So there have been about 80 million. This is a problem because what happens is for decades later, and what I mean is to the present day in Laos. This is now 50 um, years. 50 years. 50 years mm. this year. Since America left, so not That's even right. since they started, right? 
people get killed by these bomblets because they remain in the earth or wherever it is they've fallen and they can be activated once they're disturbed. So if you step on one or, unfortunately, a lot of kids Mm -hmm. see these and it's a metal thing and it looks like a toy and so it explodes when they pick it up or start playing with it. There's horrible, so many horrible stories. You know, stories of kids who would pick it up, take it home, and then, of course, it blows up when they take it home and the whole family is either killed or, or injured. Kids playing with other kids and the, their friends get killed while they get injured. Things like There's so many stories like that. And so there's vast education campaigns to try to teach kids not to, you know, what to do when they see one of these things, how to recognise them. It's a big thing. The, the, but the point is mm. about half of the casualties are children yeah. now. So about 45%, I think it is, the last t- time I looked at a figure. And it takes forever to clear the land of them. Which actually leads so, to, I, I mean, quite apart from the physical damage that unexploded ordnance wreaks on the lives of those who fall victim to them, there's also a kind of, you know, so, sometimes we, we talk about the terror inflicted by drone warfare. So yeah. terror from above, almost God's eye terror. But here you have a different type of terror. It's the defilement of the spaces that make up everyday life. It's the defilement of the ground beneath your feet. It's the knowledge that the field that might be prepared to grow food may well carry the conditions of one's own death. Uh, and it seems to be a terror in perpetuity, which again is just, it, it, there's, there's good reason that these have been referred to as abhorrent weapons, as monstrous weapons, as things that ought to galvanize the international community to the extent that due to the, um, what's sometimes called weapons contamination, in other words, the effect of these weapons are, isn't restricted to a particular space or a particular time, but continues to bleed out and infect generation after generation. Yeah, that, so they're indiscriminate in the most profound way. That's right, that's right. Yeah, because they're indiscriminate not just in space, but in time. That's it. Yeah. So what you see in a place like Laos is, by the way, so there, there are UN programs, Australia contributes money, etc., to clearing, to demining these areas. But just to put this in perspective... At the current rate of demining, which is very dangerous work, by the way, for obvious reasons and very difficult to do. I'm kind of amazed there isn't just a robot that can do these things, but clearly there isn't. At the current rate, it would take Lao 100 years from now to be demined. That's what we're talking about, right? Now, that rate may speed up. It, it may not, but that's the scale of the problem, in a place like Laos. And when they run education campaigns, they can reduce deaths and casualties. So it's down, I think, now to about 50 deaths a year or something like that, which in the context of everything is not a huge number. But the problem is, I mean, it's a tragic number still, but it's not, you know, it's not like there are thousands of people dying every year. But the problem is when you run the education campaign so that people know what to do and they can ignore or or avoid these areas, the land becomes unusable. That's right. So there is now a, I mean, you can try to farm it if you want, but you can only till it very shallowly and you're taking your life into your own hands when you do it. One of the most arresting stories I came across was um, a family that had an ordinance blow up because they lit a fire on their property to cook their dinner. Hmm. When you think about that, this is the kind of unusability of the land, right? And so there is a really clear correlation between the most impoverished areas of Laos and the areas that were bombed. So the intergenerational effects are not just death and injury, it's poverty. Yeah. So we've outlined now just how big a problem this is. The reason this has come up now... Just before, sorry, Waleed. Yeah. I mean, it is worth pointing out that there was a vast global movement that led in 1997 to an international ban on the use of landmines. The same moral impetus that fueled that global movement led in 2008 to a convention against the use of cluster munitions. To date, 123 nations have signed up to that convention. There seems to be, in other words, even though neither are legally binding, both are voluntary, and it's conspicuous the nations that have not signed on, and have not signed on for different reasons, and I think it's importantly different reasons, these are not legally binding. The force that they have, the force that these conventions, these international agreements have, is a moral force. 
I think it's very important to, to well, name that. It's, it might be a touch more. It might be a touch more than moral. Really? Okay. Well, so for example, so there's a convention against the use of cluster bombs. That's right. 123 nations have signed it. That's right. Importantly for our discussion, three of the nations who haven't are Russia, <laughs> Ukraine, and the United States. Yeah. Okay. But the United States does have domestic legislation that prohibits it from using weaponry of this sort that has a failure rate. So when the bomblets don't explode, that's called the dud rate because mm. they're like dud bomblets. It's not necessarily that the bomblet themselves itself is a dud. It's that it might have, instead of landing on hard ground that caused it to you know shock and explode, yeah. it landed in mud or it landed in sand or that's it right. landed in water or something. I mean, there's a million reasons why it might not. But um, there's a legislative ban on weaponry with a failure rate of more than 1%. Well, yes. I mean, the United States doesn't really use these weapons. I mean, they did in Afghanistan. They did in Iraq. Yeah, they used them quite a bit. Yes, they, they did. But <laughs> they since, used them in the former Yugoslavia. Yes, they did. But yeah. since that time, uh, it's also that domestic legislation you're referring to also prohibits the transfer of those weapons. So outside right. of the NATO and transferring it to other nations, other allies, when that dud rate... Uh, isn't lower than one percent, and the current the current munitions that are used, the dud rate is around two percent. So it's it's well, not you know. it's not actually. So they say the dud rate is two point three five percent, and yep. that's in testing, but that doesn't seem to be true in the field. No, that's true for obvious reasons. When they test it, they drop it on a big plane. The ground is relatively hard and clear, so you're going to get maximum explosion, mm. right? But when you drop it in the field, and some fields more than others. It, it's going to land on different sorts of surfaces. There's going to be all sorts of circumstances. That's, so the dud rate that's observed in the field by technicians who've gone out there is probably more in the 10 to 14% range, right? This all matters because these weapons are being used in Ukraine. Hmm. Let's be really clear. Russia has been using them from the beginning. Yes, they have. And the Russian cluster bombs, I mean, who really knows, but the dud rate that gets reported is about Around 40%, 40%, yeah, which is a huge dud rate. That's right. And to be clear, the higher the dud rate, the worse the problem. Hmm. The egregiousness so Russia, of that dud rate, by the way, we need to be so careful, I think, in teasing out the parameters of this problem, because it really is a problem. Hmm. Uh, the fact that the dud rate is so high with Russia's cluster munitions, and the fact that those munitions are being used on foreign soil... In other words, that they're being used by the aggressor. I think that yep. makes the egregiousness of the use even worse. Even if one uh, wants to stand by a kind of moderate uh, prohibition on cluster munitions, being used by an aggressor either from the sky or onto soil that is not that of one's own country. Um, in other words, you're just you're inflicting terror upon terror upon terror. Four on, generations. Four yeah. generations, that's right. Yeah. So Russia has been doing this from the start. Yes. And there is... In, to my mind, no argument that can justify that. Yes, I agree. It's so wanton. I, I want, it's wanton by its very yeah, nature. So I wanna, yeah, so I want our audience to understand, we're not letting Russia off the hook here. That is to be condemned, but it's, it's obviously so. Mm. I don't think we need to tease that out. Mm -hmm. right? What is interesting is that Ukraine has responded by using them as well. That's right. They're using the Russian-made ones, from what I've been able to glean, which means similar dud rate. Mm. But what's happened in the past couple of weeks is Ukraine went to America and asked for American cluster bombs, which put America, and Joe Biden specifically, in a position of having to consider whether or not this is something they wanted to contribute to. And the final analysis, after what Joe Biden called a difficult decision, they decided to provide them. They had to get around their 1% legislative limit, and so it required a presidential decision to get around that right. um, legislative block, which is why I referred to it earlier. This is, I don't, I don't want to use terms that sound like a pun, but this is morally loaded because I think we've explained what is so pernicious about these weapons. We've explained why it is that America so frequently stands condemned for its use of them in the past. You mm. talk about an aggressor invading and using this on foreign soil. Well, this is what America has done over and over and over That's again. That's right. And recently, this is what happens in Iraq, Kuwait, Afghanistan. We Syria. barely talk about this, by yeah. the way. 
which is, I think, to our shame. Yep. So there's a prima facie case against America's decision here that is obvious and in some ways makes itself. Of course, what we have to reckon with is that this is a unique circumstance. This is very, very different because it's Ukraine wanting to use cluster bombs, soliciting the United States for their provision for use on its own soil Mm -hmm. in its own defence. And so there's an argument I can see that is obvious and immediate that says, well, if this is the decision Ukraine has made and what Ukraine wants to do in its own national interest for its own survival, then who are you to have a problem? It's their sovereignty. They're under attack. They can defend themselves by whatever means they see as appropriate. I see the force in this argument. I don't agree with it in the end because I think, well, what if they decided let's use chemical weapons? Or I mean, it, at some point, you would have to conclude, wouldn't you, that there are some weapons that simply shouldn't be used, even on one's own land and even in one's own defence. The argument that I think follows from that that becomes interesting is, and this is the argument the United States is making, and let's be really clear to give the United States its due here, they are not making the argument Russia's using them, therefore That's right. we'll do it too. It's not a, well, they started it, so we're just going to respond in kind. That's not quite the argument. It's an important distinction. The argument they're making is they're being used anyway if this land is already spoiled. If Ukraine wants to use this on the same land, then basically it makes no difference. The damage is already done. The marginal harm to civilians is is small to negligible because this is land that is destroyed and uh, would have to be demined anyway. Before I go on, what do you think of that argument? I mean, this this really is immensely complicated. Uh, the fact that the munitions are being sought in order to wage a defensive war and a, if <laughs> sounds terrible, a defensive counteroffensive. In other words, to try to push the Russian forces that are deeply entrenched along the, what, six, seven hundred kilometer eastern front of the nations to try to push those forces back. And the hope is that that doing so will kind of precipitate some kind of negotiated peace. That, I think, raises the moral stakes somewhat because it doesn't become the act of an aggressor indiscriminately shelling foreign soil. The first question, however, is... Can a current generation offer political consent to the damage that is going to be inflicted without question upon a later generation and multiple later generations? So I think the question of consent there, we are consenting to these munitions being used on our soil. I think that only gets you so far. The second issue is that this is a war that the Ukrainians have decided to wage in a particular manner, which is essentially as an artillery duel. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of rounds are being shot every day at deeply entrenched Russian troops in the hope that, through a familiar war of attrition, that it will simply exhaust Russian forces, munitions, and so on, and create a kind of grudging retreat. I'll just say I'm not an expert in warfare, obviously. There are other ways of waging a particular war. This is one way of waging war, and it's a cost, not a human cost, but an artillery-intensive way of waging war. The reason the United States has been asked for these munitions is because the Ukrainians' store of long-range weapons, of artillery, is desperately low. And it's desperately low because of the rate at which these munitions are being fired. Again, there are other ways of waging war. This is one way. This is one way. So even if one is in no doubt about the moral justness of the Ukrainian cause in defending their own grounds, to say that this is the only way of defending their soil, of repelling Russian invaders, that raises further questions. The the final issue for me, Waleed, and in many respects, this may well be the definitive issue, the determinate issue for my own thinking. Once cluster munitions become not an extreme weapon, but 
to use the term that you sometimes use, the accepted uh, weaponry coin of the realm. It creates a new baseline. So instead of using cluster munitions as an extreme form of highly damaging weaponry, they then become, the Russians are doing it, the Ukrainians are doing it. This is how they are exchanging fire with one another. Not only does that stand to exacerbate and exponentially increase the sheer number of unexploded cluster munitions that are going to be left on the ground, not only does it exacerbate and exponentially increase the damage that's going to be wrought, and to say that this is only damage for future generations, we've already seen towns, villages have cluster munitions unexploded left uh, in or around, and in fact those cluster munitions going off in and around towns themselves. For, for the destruction of this weaponry to be exacerbated and to exponentially increase, what that also does is by creating a kind of baseline, this is now the accepted use of weaponry, doesn't that also increase the stakes and run the risk of escalating what is the next terrible measure that might be used? In other words, once yeah. the side that can justly claim the moral high ground engages in the same weaponry that the nations, that so many nations of the world have justly, morally, legally condemned, then it creates the new baseline, uh, which means that acceleration, uh, escalation, can then be uh, with some justification. I don't mean this in terms of either a moral or a legal justification, but a kind of strategic justification can then be increased. It becomes so, conventional. This is just the way we do. It becomes war. conventional. And, and I guess the logic that undergirds all of this is Ukraine has decided that the greater evil in this conflict is the prospect of Russian occupation, Russian takeover. Yep. That's the greater evil. And that's the decision they're making for future generations. Precisely, which means that the lesser evil, even if it is an evil, even if it's conceded that it is an evil, the lesser evil is the use of cluster munitions in the same way that, say, torture might be regarded as a lesser evil. So the question right. for me then becomes, is this a form of weaponry that is beyond the pale, that's off the table, that's unthinkable because of the damage and because of the ongoing damage? Or is this part of our ongoing consideration? And as you've asked in other contexts, once exceptions are found in the case of egregious circumstances, extenuating circumstances, then what do those exceptions mean for the the moral and legal prohibitions we've erected in the first place? So I've got, I want to make two really quick points before we go to our guest. Yeah. One is I agree with, I think, all the points you've made. The, one of the problems I have with the American argument that this is land that will have to be demined anyway is, sure, but when you add millions more <laughs> of these bombers, how much longer does it take to demine? 200 million think, rounds, incidentally, have been sent to Ukraine, just just for right. perspective. So, so I don't, I mean, I just don't think the idea of going, well, it's basically zero cost because the damage is already done quite reckons with the task of demining and the the length of time that would be required and the damage that will do and for how long it will do it and, and the unusability of the land for that long. Um, I think America might be on stronger ground to go, hey, they're going to use them anyway. We better give them one with a lower dud rate. Mm -hmm. That might be a slightly better argument, although it still raises some of the problems you've raised. I agree with your argument about norm setting in theory. The only problem I have with it, and this is not an encouraging problem to have with it, is that this norm has been set for ages. Mm. I would be, in some ways, a little more content with the US decision had it not been the same decision they had made in so many wars. Yeah. And I understand the kind of existential nature of this war, particularly for Ukraine. And even in the eyes of NATO and in the eyes of the West generally in democracies, seeing an existential dimension to this, I understand that argument. I don't even necessarily dispute it. I'd have to think more about how much I sign up to it. But I just make the observation that it was a pretty existential argument that was being made That's in right. Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. Yeah. And it actually ends up being a pretty existential argument in just about every war because that's kind of what war does. Mm. So if you start making exceptions on the grounds of existential threat, you end up with no exception at all. Yeah. Well, you end up with it just becoming the rule. Mm. Anyway, their initial thoughts. Let's get a guest. Our guest is Adil Haq. He's professor of law and the Judge John O. Newman Scholar at Rutgers Law School. He's the author of Law and Morality at War, which already kind of 
makes a deal pretty much perfect. He's also executive editor of the national security blog, Just Security. Adil, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thanks so much for having me. So you've heard our hand-wringing. I've learned already so much about what you've written on this topic. I'm just going to get you to take the conversation up and take us where you think it ought to go. Oh, sure. So I guess maybe picking up on one theme of your conversation. So the motivation for the Cluster Munitions Convention, part of it was a a very straightforward judgment that it is very, very, very hard to use cluster munitions in a lawful or morally tolerable way. And in the rare cases where you could, conventional weapons would probably do as good a job anyway. So why not just take them off the table? But there was another idea sort of lurking, which is that every country who has tried to use cluster munitions in a lawful and ethically tolerable way has failed. And we don't want states to think that they will be the exception, that they will be the one to finally use these weapons in an acceptable way. And so these states, 120-odd states, have basically said, we're just going to renounce this option. And as I heard your conversation, I think one theme that emerges is that if cluster munitions are used here by Ukraine, other states may observe that and think, well, if Ukraine can trust its own judgment and Ukraine's allies trust its judgment, why shouldn't we trust our judgment? and use cluster munitions when we think it is appropriate to do so. Uh, And that is when the norm unravels. And maybe one of those states will use them in an acceptable way, but most won't. Uh, And that's an additional fear about the the unraveling of the norm that the uh, Cluster Munitions Convention tried to create and entrench in the international community. So that's just one thought based on what these folks were were discussing. I suppose this is part of the thing where I reach the limit of what I can judge, and maybe you're in a better position to judge it, either. but are there conventional weapons alternatives here? So what bothers me, uh, I was going to say most, it may not be most, but what bothers me greatly is the thought that you could Ukraine in a more conventional, legally uncontroversial manner and ethically uncontroversial manner. It would just be quite a bit more expensive to do so and it would Mm -hmm. be more time consuming and America doesn't have time for that because it thinks this is the moment the war has to be won. There could be all sorts of perhaps even clear-eyed calculations that go into that. You know, Joe Biden might fear in a year and a bit he'll lose an election, Donald Trump will come into the White House, his attitude to the Ukraine war seems to be quite different Uh, Ukraine may not get much support at all or may fail. It therefore has to be given whatever it needs to do the job quickly now. So there's a couple of threshold questions there. One is, is it possible for Ukraine to succeed with conventional weapons? But secondly, what if it were possible but so costly and time-consuming that it became either undesirable or unrealistic? This sort of introduces a different set of moral considerations or, or perhaps I should say it adds an additional layer to the moral considerations here. I don't know your level of weapons uh, expertise, but feel free to use whatever of it you have. I don't know, how do you reflect on those dimensions of this, those questions that get raised? So, you know, like you, you know, I am not in a position to um, to say, you know, what weapons Ukraine, you know, has been using up until this point, uh, which seem to be uh, running out and what it could be provided with if they were available. But my understanding is that these cluster munitions are being sought and provided because the conventional alternatives are not available in sufficient quantities, which indicates to me that those alternatives exist, uh, but they just haven't been produced fast enough to keep up with the rate at which Ukraine is, uh, is using the munitions that have already been provided. If that's true, do you reach a point of argument by necessity? There is no alternative here. The alternative here is Russian victory. So that also, you know, 
raises a question that is is difficult for me to answer, you know, as a, a lawyer and as a philosopher rather than a strategist, which is the purpose of this counteroffensive and whether there was uh, an option to essentially hold the line against Russian forces until more supplies were were provided, or whether the counteroffensive had to be launched now, perhaps before more Russian forces uh, enter the battlefield. Again, that's uh, that's kind of beyond my my particular expertise. I do have a particular question, if you wouldn't mind me kind of shifting sure. things back onto sort of more moral philosophical territory. Yeah, please. And I should actually say say why. I guess one of the really difficult things when it comes to any moral theorizing about war is that those moral theories work very, very nicely in one of two contexts. One is when the context is completely sterile and almost lab-based, where you can kind of theorize uh, in a vacuum. And the other is where the casualties or the human risk is so overdetermined that it makes certain humanitarian concerns, not that they should ever be absent from our thinking, but it makes certain humanitarian concerns uh, loom larger than perhaps they otherwise would in other contexts outside of, say, the, the fog of war. I'm just wondering, idea about, about the whole lesser evil calculation here. So the idea would be, yes, cluster munitions are not an ideal weapon. Yes, they have a dud rate. Yes, they pose, an, I think by any calculation, an unreasonable threat to civilians, not just currently, but in future generations. It's that final element of the calculation that I'm wondering about. What is it? How should we begin judging the threat that weapons pose to civilians? Because the calculation would be, yes, there might be some threat to them now, but the threat under the brutality of Russian rule, dot, 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 becomes so much greater later. How would we assess the reasonableness, the harmfulness, the unethical quality of those weapons now before we then move on to, say, those later strategic questions? Yeah, it's interesting because that uh, particular line of argument seems to me has been pressed more strongly by the United States than by Ukraine. So it seems to me that Ukraine's primary argument is that even if in, in certain circumstances cluster munitions would be indiscriminate, we won't use them in an indiscriminate way. We won't use them in populated areas. We won't use them in cities. We'll use them away from civilians in these areas of high concentrations of Russian troops, uh, tanks, and artillery. So there won't be an immediate impact on civilians. And then when we succeed in our counteroffensive and we take this territory, we're going to close off these areas and begin demining uh, as quickly as possible. And you, you two have already addressed how difficult demining is, but that, that seems to me to be Ukraine's primary argument that the two principal objections against cluster munitions, we're going to address them head on by only using them in certain areas and then by, by trying to effectively demine, by trying to retrieve or uh, destroy the bomblets uh, as soon as possible. It's really the Americans who, it seems to me, are leaning more heavily on this other argument that the alternative to using cluster munitions is Russian victory and all the brutality that that will involve. And so that sounds much more like a lesser evils argument or what in philosophy is sometimes called a supreme emergency yes. argument, that even if there are kind of categorical prohibitions in the ethics of war, those prohibitions could be overridden uh, when absolutely necessary to prevent some extreme catastrophic moral horror, which a total lesson control over Ukraine may may very well amount to. It's interesting that the the Ukrainians and the Americans are actually leaning on somewhat different arguments yes. uh, to to defend this transfer, especially because the argument the Americans making uh, are making seems to be much more suitable as a Ukrainian one. <laughs> I mean, Ukraine has far greater right to be arguing about the impossible horror of Russian victory here it seems, than America does. But the Ukrainian argument, if you, as you've outlined it there, about where these weapons are being used, I, I don't know about you, Adel, but I, I find it kind of wholly unpersuasive. Mm, me too. Only because well, cluster bombs are very often dropped in low population areas. That doesn't 
But it doesn't mean they don't do very serious damage for generations to come. I mean, we mentioned the example of Laos because it's obviously such a, a signal case, but like Laos is a very rural country. The bombs that were dropped on Laos are in, often in rural areas and it's devastated those areas and yeah. made them impoverished. And it means you can't do things like farming or whatever. I mean, it depends on the specific nature of the land that's being bombed. But unless this is land that had no use and was never going to have any use, the damage will be significant. Like it, do, it doesn't, when I say significant, I mean catastrophically so. It, do, it doesn't yeah. need to kill lots of people in the first instance or be dropped in urban centres for that damage to be done, does it? Well, so the, the damage of sort of leaving large areas of land, you know, unusable, uninhabitable, uh, unfarmable. Yes, yeah, so that, that seems to be the future of substantial tracts of Ukraine. What I, I would say is that the, the specific concern about indiscriminate harm to civilian people, in principle, that could be addressed by uh, limiting access to these areas. So the result is that many people would lose their homes, their farmland, um, you know, the places that they that they know and love, but they would not be killed by unexploded ordnance. So we'd be looking at a different set of moral and legal considerations, not the ones pertaining to human life, but the ones pertaining to what makes life worth living, you know, the, the places you love and the places that make up your, your home. But it would be a different set of considerations, I think. Can I just also add one footnote to what the two of you were just saying? Uh, one of the other reasons why I find this particular, say, the prudential argument, that these will only be used in very specific cases in specific territories for a specific period of time and with uh, minimal collateral damage. I mean, the justification that's been offered to date is that the stores of conventional munitions are so catastrophically low and that the threat is so existentially high that where we would ordinarily use conventional munitions, cluster munitions are having to be used instead. When you then plug that claim, or that reality, if you like, into the logic of the fact that Ukraine has decided to wage what is essentially an artillery and long-range-based war, uh, where upwards of six, seven, eight thousand rounds are being fired a day, Again, doesn't this begin to increase the likelihood of the, it seems to me, even inevitable logic of not just long-term damage, but also, again, I come back to the issue which we haven't addressed yet, and I'll invite either of the two of you to do that, the problem of likely escalation. I, I realize that there's a kind of teleological dimension. We're already seeing escalation, right? I mean, the United States has repeatedly said, no, we're not providing these weapons and then gone and provided it. Yes. Every, I mean, and this is not my analysis, this is coming from weapons experts who are following this. No, that's right. Every red line has been crossed so far. Yes. So we're seeing escalation in action, right? There's no question about that. I think the question which arises is, does necessity drive you to the point where escalation is by necessity justified, right? So say I could put in front of you, Scott, a consensus, right? Let's just accept this for the thought experiment. I could put in front of you a consensus that says there is no other way in the circumstances, given Russia's use of cluster bombs and the positions it's taken, there is no other way for Ukraine to defend itself. At that point, is escalation an argument? Well, so first, just so I understand, by escalation you mean that uh, Russia will respond by by using more cluster munitions itself, or what is the, the, the kind of escalation you have in mind? The, the escalation, to my mind, would be the use of of localized or technical, tactical, say, nuclear weapons. By Russia? Yes. Mm. And you think that that's more likely to happen if Ukraine uses cluster munitions and if it had success on the battlefield using conventional weapons? My, my question before is, once cluster munitions become the baseline rather than, if you like, the line which only under particular circumstances can be crossed, once that becomes the new baseline, then things that were formerly unthinkable then become unfortunately thinkable. Yeah, I mean, it raises a, another question, which is about um, to what extent does the permissibility of Ukraine's actions depend on how Russia will respond so one response people have had to Ukraine's claim that, look, once we retake these territories, we'll demine them has been, well, you might not retake the territories. Russia may remain in, in control of those territories, and they may not uh, take the same types of measures to protect 
civilians. So that's one way in which the permissibility of Ukraine's action might depend on what Russia may or may not do. And you're sort of raising another, if Ukraine uses cluster munitions, how will Russia respond? And does that affect the permissibility of what Ukraine is doing? I think that, that's a very difficult question because um, on one hand, typically, when we think about what's right or wrong to do, we think, well, what can we foresee will happen as a result of our conduct? We also think that if other people engage in wrongdoing, then they have primary responsibility for their own wrongdoing, and that's not attributable to us. So in cases like this, those two intuitions sort of pull against one another. Um, and it's hard to resolve that tension. Yeah. I guess, well, well it might, my sim- and this is not a simple response to your question, but, I mean, my beginnings of an answer is that if we believe that there is something like a, a morality that is inherent to the commission of a just war, the carrying out of a just, of, of a just war, then that means that there are necessarily... Uh, forms of warfare that can be engaged in, but that must not be engaged in for that just war to be still considered just, which must mean then that there are points at which a war becomes unjust and that the victory that is achieved by those unjust means cannot help but taint the moral character, the quality of the victory itself. Even if it's a defense that left no other option. So if the, if the aggressor is using a particular kind of strategy that means there is no otherwise just way of responding, are you saying what the moral demands of that situation are is defeat? It, well, it, honestly, it may well be. So, for instance, for instance, <sighs> well, no, truly, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this lightly. No, no, if, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to laugh you out of court. I'm, I'm just if saying it that's a, it's a heavy answer. I know, I know. And, and that's why I'm, I'm trying to be really cautious in even suggesting it. But if it, were, if it were believed, for instance, that the presence of German nationals within France between 1938 and 1944, say, were, were giving um, crucial strategic information uh, to Germany that would lead inevitably to a kind of German takeover of France and therefore an occupation. And that the best way of dealing with that particular threat is by summarily rounding up all German nationals, by interning them, or even under the worst circumstances, say, summarily executing them. Because what is the great good that is being preserved is French autonomy, French nationhood. And that's the only way of guaranteeing uh, success in the war. Who, who would say, that that is a, uh, a measure that is worth taking. It, it's at that point that any victory, any protection of the homeland that was being gained would be soured, would be so morally defiled by the act that was taken in order to gain it uh, as to make, okay, defeat and perhaps even occupation uh, something that at least had to be morally considered. Yeah, but you know what's interesting is, I mean, you hear a little bit of these sorts of objections to the bombing of... Hiroshima to end World War II. But by and large, uh, you know, the feeling about World War II that I encounter is a just war justly won. Oh, wow. I don't know who you're listening to. Do you disagree? Yes, completely, completely. As in you don't think that's... And they're also great. And they're also and they're also great many historians and military strategists alike. Uh, Ideal, correct me if I'm wrong. No, I mean, so I I think many Americans may think that the use of nuclear weapons against um, Japanese civilians was morally acceptable, but I I don't think that's any kind of consensus view. It's certainly not my view. Um, So I think one thing that is, you know, interesting is that so deliberate attacks on civilians, uh, like the ones on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so many people think that that violates an absolute prohibition because you're deliberately attacking civilians, killing them as a means to achieve your objective, and that that's categorically off the the table. And I think if Ukraine were proposing to use cluster munitions um, against Russian-occupied cities, um, I think many people might have that same Hmm. reaction, that no, you can't Mm -hmm. use indiscriminate weapons against a densely populated city even if that's the only way to retake the city because of the way Russian forces are deployed or, or because you're you know, out, of, out of alternative 
questions. I think what makes this the real case harder is because Ukraine is trying to uh, address the, the main concerns about cluster munitions in these ways. And the response is, well, you're not addressing them well enough. You know, we still have concerns about immediate civilian harm. We still have concern about long-term civilian harm. But I think what makes the case, uh, the real case, difficult is that Ukraine is saying that it will not use these weapons in an indiscriminate way. And the concern is there's no way to use these weapons in a discriminate way. And I think that's what makes the real case harder. Mm. Just to be clear, I'm not remotely saying there's a consensus on the appropriateness of (laughs) the use of nuclear weapons in World War II. I'm just talking about the general atmospherics that surround World War II. When people talk about World War II, they don't talk about it through a prism of shame. They talk about it in general through a prism of the necessity of defeating the Nazis. Um, that's the overwhelming narrative I encounter. And yeah, I didn't like that bombing or that's controversial or maybe we should have a debate about that or we could have a debate about that. But it, it doesn't, I think all I'm saying is I don't feel like it taints the victory of World War II in quite the way that you're saying victory can be tainted, Scott. And that was a situation far worse than the use of cluster munitions in yeah. I think I think the victory against Japan or the submission of Japan, I, I mean, that... There are issues with that, how it was achieved. No doubt. No uh, doubt. That, that simply were not present on, on the European continent. And, and, and look, can I, can I just say, you know, I'm not, <laughs> dear God, you know, especially in a show like this, I'm not saying that Ukrainians need to protect their moral purity, roll over, and accept what would almost certainly be a, a severe, severe damage to, if not the destruction of, things that truly are, truly belong to the realm of human goods, what make life worth living, what make Ukrainian national life worth living, especially, especially in the aftermath with the knowledge of something like Stalin's barricading and starvation of the nation. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that at all, but it's also important that we have these conversations in the manner that we do Because there are ways in which, are there not, and I think we're all agreeing, there are ways in which military victory, while achieved or while assured, can be such that uh, there are not the sufficient moral conditions that go along with that victory for that victory to have been justified. Especially given we haven't really had a proper explanation of why conventional weapons couldn't be sufficient in this case. And I'm less concerned with Ukraine's request for it. I mean, they know about spoiled land. This is the home of Chernobyl. But I'm less concerned with their request for it than I am with America's decision to acquiesce to it. There's something about that. It's a slightly different dynamic. Anyway, I think we're done. Ardell, you've you've helped us immensely. For those playing at home, by the way, who might believe in nominative determinism, Ardell's the perfect guest because Ardell means one who is just and Huck means truth. So, I mean, I don't know... (laughs) how you could have a better named <laughs> guest to engage with this topic. But uh, Adel Huck is our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, Professor of Law and Judge John O. Newman, Scholar at Rutgers Law School. He's the author of Law and Morality at War. Adel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you both. We're done. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.